Our scripture reading this evening is from the third chapter of John's Gospel. Very familiar portion of scripture, especially this portion that contains the lovely words of John 3 and verse 16. We're going to include that verse in our scripture reading, commencing to read at the verse 14 of John's Gospel, chapter 3. The 14th verse of John's Gospel, chapter 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, and neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. We end a reading at the verse 21 of this chapter, knowing that God will add to the public reading of his truth his own divine seal of approval and blessing. My text this Lord's Day evening is the verse 20 of John's Gospel, chapter 3. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, and neither cometh to the light, lest their deeds should be reproved. And the subject is very simple and straightforward, dealing with guilt, or we might well reword it as the legacy of guilt. In recent days, many evangelicals have become more and more conscious of the spirit of hostility, the spirit of animosity, and the spirit of hatred that has been exerted and expressed against the preaching of the message of the gospel. It seems to me personally that every possible pressure is being directed against the word of God in a manner that we have not experienced before in this generation. And to some dear people, this has led them to somewhat compromise their position and enter into the domain of the silent. For tragically, in many cases, the voice of protest is no longer heard and the challenge of the word is sadly and tragically restricted. Other dear people take the view that this is the spirit of the age. It is not going to change. 
It is not going to transform itself. Therefore, our cause is hopeless and our case should be left to the side. May I say that this fatalistic approach is something that is contrary to the teaching of God's precious word. For I contend most earnestly on the authority of the scriptures that anyone who is faithful to this precious book will automatically be brought to a place of humility and also to the place where there is an exposure of the devil whose desire is to dogmatically, deceitfully, and determinately resist men and women and boys and girls from being pointed to the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. But why should this be? After all, the person who testifies to the saving and transforming power of the gospel is simply the deliverer of the message. But significantly, it is when we carefully assess this fundamental statement that we are provided with the main reason why so much enmity converges against the man or the woman who believes and accepts unreservedly in the infallibility of the Word of God. There is clearly something about the message of redeeming grace that the heart of the human finds totally unacceptable. And that is the challenge that we face at this moment in the history of this nation and within the context of this service. Surely, it can't be deemed as unacceptable to say to the sinner that God loves you. Can it be a cause of personal resentment when the mercy of God toward the unconverted is faithfully expounded? And is it justifiable for an unsafe man or woman to replace a message of hope for the one that speaks of eternal damnation? From every angle, it just does not make sense. And yet these are the matters that lie at the very heart of the gospel and are often cast into the make-believe world of forgetfulness. Or to put it another way, and many have dismissed any thought of God from their lives as they take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, is saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And that is, let us be rid of their influence. But there is one thing that men and women cannot and will not of themselves jettison from their lives. And that is the impact and the effects of personal gift, personal guilt. The fool may say in his heart, there is no God, but not one person in this entire world is able to say, no guilt. And to that end, 
Please look at these words from John 3, verse 20. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, and neither cometh to the light, lest his deed should be reproved. I believe that the implication of these words are timeless in their relevancy. Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, and neither cometh to the light, lest his deed should be reproved. Please notice, first of all, the universal registering of guilt. Here there are no exclusions or exceptions. For while it has often been quoted that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the application of this most definitive of all truths is keenly felt by individualized or personalized guilt. But why should any person, irrespective of their national birth, their religious upbringing, or their irreligious views, be in any way subjected to privatized feelings of guilt? Why are we not capable of silencing gift and pronouncing ourselves to be the paragon of innocency? This is, without doubt, the most significant question of this generation and the answer that all of us must face up to is the fact that we have been created in the image of God. There is a part of our makeup that is made distinct from all the creatures that have been magnificently created by God. I know this is touching at the nerve center of Darwin's theory of evolution. And that is done deliberately to challenge the totally unscientific and the unbiblical proposition that man is the end product of an evolutionary system that inextricably includes the animal world. But try as man may, he cannot deny uh, the existence of God. Uh, And even those who pronounce their view that God does not exist, they're always caught out. Have you not heard on occasions, even recently, where some of the most unbelieving men and women have said of a deceased relative, he's looking down from above? That doesn't make sense to those who don't believe in God and believe in eternity. But that's what they say. But they cannot disconnect themselves from guilt for this reason, that they have an eternal soul. Listen carefully to the words of Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world, may become guilty before God. It is therefore abundantly clear that guilt is God-related. And in the words of our text, 
Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, and neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. I trust you understand me when I say in the most simplistic of terms, the lost sinner is scared of the light. They know that all is not well with them, spiritually speaking, so they will adopt any method they can in an effort to deflect the light of God's word from shining upon them. This gives me a degree, just a degree, of understanding why men and women throughout our nation in various cities that are located in its various parts, uh, they parade through our streets on so-called Pride Day, advocating, advancing the act of sodomy in a manner that is carnival in nature, uh, that is accompanied with the loudest possible music, that is presented with the most appealing and attractive outward appearance of glamour and of glit. Is it not a vain attempt to conceal the depravity, the perversity, and the corruption of a heart that is deceitful? and above all things desperately wicked. Without exception, all the world is guilty before God. The universal registering of guilt. But there's also the uncovering remembrance of guilt. Here I must emphasize that the uncovering of guilt is based upon the teaching of the scriptures. I say this for a very important reason. Over and over again, I have met dear men and women who speak of their guilt in the aftermath of a family bereavement. Openly and often emotionally, they speak of their regret in the managerial care of a loved one. They feel that if they had put this in place or that in place, things would have been different. And as a consequence, feelings of guilt are articulated in their conversation. While I cannot profess to know everyone that has been bereaved, I have observed over my ministry the love-driven devotion uh, to a dear mother, a father, wife, husband, brother, sister, a son and daughter. And in my observation, I can honestly say that I know no one uh, that should be occupied with the terror of guilt in how they have handled such delicate situations. But there are biblical insights into what it means for an individual or individuals to have guilt uncovered by way of remembrance. I refer to two. One is Genesis 42, verse 21. And in that 42nd chapter of Genesis, 
We have the record of Joseph and his ten brethren in discussion about the inevitability of their second visit to Egypt. Uh, And although they did not recognize uh, Rachel's first son to their father, uh, they were troubled at the conditional request. Ye shall not go forth hence, Joseph said, except your youngest brother come hither. That's a reference to Benjamin. Immediately. There was triggered off in the minds of the ten a recollection of an incident that had simultaneously bound their memory to their words. We are guilty, they said, among themselves concerning our brother. In that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear Therefore is this distress come upon us. They saw when they lowered Joseph down into the pit, a young lad of 17 years of age, the anguish, the distress, the agony that was etched upon his countenance. And they never forgot it. 13 years had not erased the etching of fear that had inscribed themselves into the countenance of the guilty. When they went to bed at night, that image was projected before them. When they attended to their animals in the area around Shechem, their eyes could focus on the very pit in which they had lowered Joseph down. Every evening, when they watched their father's eyes well up with tears, as he reminisced on his beloved son, they knew their part in the incident, and their guilt was being uncovered through remembrance. Thankfully for Joseph's brothers, God gave them time to be reconciled. Uh, And their part in the whole experience ends in a note of glorious triumph. Dear unsaved one, the the application of this truth must not be lost. For me, a sinner saved by God's grace I must remember the rock from whence I have been hewn and the hole of the pit from which I have been digged. At best, at very best, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. But for you who are not yet saved, I most lovingly and faithfully alert you to something that you must face up to. It is exactly the same challenge that faced Pilate many years ago when he declared publicly, I have sinned 
in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. This is not about church. It's not about denomination. It's about betraying the innocent blood of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But what does this really mean? Why should a preacher, evangelist, or any pastor draw attention to a person's guilt? What right have I to remind you of your wrongdoing? What right have I to recall your guilt? I say to you, I have no right whatever. But I have a responsibility. For here in the words that we've just read, the Lord Jesus Christ reminded us, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Again, I do stress this very lovingly. From every angle, this simply does not make sense. There is no comparison between walking in darkness and walking in light. No comparison, dear unsaved one, between going to heaven and going to hell. And the only explanation given is that men have something to hide. Their deeds are evil. They will strive, of course, for other men's deeds to be exposed and to be examined, but not their own. Joseph's brethren had convinced themselves that the wicked deeds that they had committed against their brother were being gradually buried under the passage of time, with each passing year pushing them further and further into the descent of the forgotten. But if ever there was an illustration of that text from Ecclesiastes 3, verse 15, this is it. That which hath been is now and that which is to be hath already been. And God, and God requireth that which is past. Governments may legislate for the past. Politicians may debate and discuss its findings. But ultimately, ultimately, God requireth that which is past. And even may I say this with regard to the legislation on abortion. I wonder, have you ever thought about this? That every child that is removed from its mother's womb, that child is in heaven. 
And that child in the day of judgment will be a voice of witness against the evil of this generation. For God will require that which is past. Luke 16 gives us an insight into what life is like in hell. And I would be deceptive if I suggested to you that I could adequately describe the horrors and the torments and the agony of men and women as they ceaselessly wrestle with the complexities of their guilt. Because their guilt goes on into eternity. Son, remember, said Abraham to the poor lost soul who is used by the Holy Spirit as part of the biblical description of hell, son, remember, that thy and thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. The word son, remember, echo down through the corridors of time unrepentant murderers. Remember, God requireth that which is past. Unrepentant adulterers. Remember, God requireth that which is past. Unrepentant fraudsters. God requireth that which is past. I earnestly pray that no one in this gathering will be transferred from earth to hell when their soul exits their body. It's an awful thought to take that short step from earth to a Christless eternity to face the one who is well described as the judge of all the earth. Those who are not saved throughout this world, who listen to the gospel, who are appealed to that they should come to a knowledge of sins forgiven, they will remember, they will remember the time when they heard that gospel truth. And they will recall the occasions when they trampled underfoot the precious blood of the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. That dear man in hell fully recognized his position. And he said to Abraham, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house, 
for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them lest they come into this place of torment. And may I suggest to you that a major component of that torment is guilt. No government legislation will erase that guilt. No amnesty of men will give that peace. God requireth that which is past. Finally, but briefly, we come to the unconditional removal of guilt. Thankfully, there is a message here. Uh, And in the verse 21 of John 3, it clearly brings to our attention uh, the truth that motivates the sinner's heart to come to the light. Man of his own desire, man of his own intent, will never come to that light. We've read that, we've emphasized it, for every one that doeth evil hateth the light neither cometh to the light, lest his deed should be reproved, that is, discovered. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light. And this truth, dear friend, confirms that another has taken the sinner's guilt, that the full weight of eternal judgment was placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and that he entered into the darkness that we might be brought into the light. Dear unsaved one, lovingly and tenderly and gently, he takes you by the hand this very evening And with words that abound in grace, he says, he that believeth in him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Some years ago, I hope I can say this on a personal level, when Mrs. McLaughlin was in hospital and the Reverend McLaughlin asked me if I would call and see her. She was in the Royal Victoria Hospital and I I went to see her. And as I was coming out, this Roman Catholic priest stopped me And he introduced himself as the chaplain of the hospital for the Roman Catholic congregations. He said, I've always wanted to talk to you. He said, I appreciate so much your stand on the issues that are moral, like abortion and homosexuality and so on. And he said, I stand in those very same principles. 
What is the difference between you and me? And that was the question that he had been waiting for some time, he said, to ask me. I said to him that I did not want to deliberately offend him. But he'd asked the question, and I must give him the answer. To me, it was very simple. That you follow the traditions of the church. I follow the truth of Holy Scripture. And for a moment, there was that silence that seemed to last for quite some time. And he said, you're absolutely right. If you were to ask me to give you a Bible verse about abortion, I just couldn't do it. Or a Bible verse about homosexuality or about any other sin, I just could not do it. I'm just blindly following the traditions of the church. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light. Paul could well say, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But Paul, where is your guilt? It is in Christ Jesus. But Paul, what about your sins? They are in Christ Jesus. What about your faith, Paul? It is in Christ Jesus. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to his cross. And I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. He that doeth truth cometh to the light. That his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought of God. Dear troubled heart, surrender to the Savior tonight. Trust him. It's time you did. Don't just simply think about it. Because sooner rather than later, if you're going to go out into eternity unsaved, then eternity is going to catch up with you. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Thank you so much for listening. I trust that God will graciously and lovingly Apply his word to your heart this Sabbath evening.